Well, good morning. It's good, it's good, good to see everyone out this morning. I'm going to ask you if you have your Bible, so let's turn to Romans chapter 9. It will not be on the screen behind me for the initial reading, so I'm going to ask you to find that in your Bible, Romans chapter 9. And then uh, our tradition here, if you're a guest, uh, is that we stand for the reading of God's Word at the initial part of it. So I'm going to ask you to go ahead and do that, uh, to stand for that. Uh, then you can follow along silently as I read from my Bible. Uh, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, just in case you're reading from maybe NASB or... NLT or NIV or something like that. So Romans chapter 9. Today we're just covering five verses. Um, we're getting close to finishing up this chapter. Uh, this, really, this is really the end of the, the thoughts of this chapter. Uh, next week we'll, we'll pick up the, the last verse, but really it really goes with the next chapter. So we'll kind of close this out. So I'm going to start off at verse 24, and then we're just going to read through verse 29, 24 through 29. So... Let me start there. Uh, verse 24, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord had not left us offspring, we would, not have, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Would you mind bowing for a moment as we pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time together? Father, we thank you for these services that you allow us to live in water to have. We thank you each time that people gather as we gathered last night, we gathered uh, earlier this morning, and now we're gathering again. Uh, Lord, we thank you for all those lives that you have brought into the life of this church. We thank you for those who are visiting with us today to just to be here for various reasons. Lord, we thank you for their presence, and we do pray that this time, uh, Lord, we would be able to bring honor to your great name. Lord, I desire it is in my heart to, uh, from the things you've allowed me to study and gather from those who have invested their lives into looking into these things, uh, to take what I've learned from others, from the scriptures, and to be able to share that for it to show off your magnificence, uh, Lord, and at the same time to be a, benef a benefit to your people, that, that they would continue, that you would use this by your spirit to guide their lives in a direction that leads to just living with others, to holiness and compassion uh, in their lives as they live in the world around them, and that they would order their inner world and outer world rightly so that it resembles the kind of uh, direction Jesus lived his life uh, when he was here on earth, uh, that, that we might live that kind of way. And Father, perhaps there are, are some sins that uh, we have either uh, left unconfessed or that we might not even be cognizant of. Uh, we want to bring those before you. We know that you're aware of them. Uh, we want to plead that you would uh, pardon us and forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of Jesus. Uh, so that you might minister to us now. We pray that you're glorified, that the name of your son, or son is lifted very high today, and that your people are edified for your glory and for the glory of your son. We pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. So uh, in preparation for the sermon, an article that I came across uh, that the news story uh, by ABC, which was picked up, uh, the story was is about 10 years old now at this point, uh, ABC News and some other news outlets picked up the story about a couple uh, in Georgia. I I'm going to tell it in story form. It it's based on court documents and what was said, but I'm going to tell it in a story to, to make it easier to kind of get the point across. Um, and it's about this couple in Georgia, and it looks like Perhaps um, maybe in the late 90s is when they kind of met uh, a guy named Chris Kelly and a girl named Melissa Cooper. And Chris met Melissa, and, well, you know how things go. Uh, guys meet girls, and girls meet guys, and, and for one, one reason or another, uh, there's a connection. And as a result of that connection, uh, they decided in some point in the year 2000, to, I don't know how long they had been dating at that point, to start to live together. They thought it would be good if they would just move in together, and so they kind of moved in together. Uh, and as a part of that, now she was a single mother. Uh, she had a child from a previous relationship, and so 
uh, she brought her, that child to live with them uh, in this home. And so they were the three of them living together. And in the process of time, as you know how it goes when guys and girls are living together uh, and they're living in the same home, eventually other people start to show up. And so they had a, a baby, uh, the, the two of them together, and that added to the, to the mix. So right before Christmas, four years later in December, it was on December 23rd uh, of 2004, uh, Chris, uh, as the gift in preparation for Christmas, gave to Melissa a $10,000 engagement ring. That must have been quite some diamond. Um, and so he, he, he gave it to her. And then that, that led to other things. Uh, they, they started to purchase a home. You know the process. You get a mortgage. That, you know the idea. You don't really own it. The bank does until you pay them off. Uh, and so they start this mortgage process. They moved in, her, uh, the two kids, and him, and, and, and they started living there. And, and some time during that period, uh, they thought it'd be best if she would come home from work and just take care of the kids, and he would continue to work. And so that's what she did. She agreed, she agreed to do that uh, with these hopes of, of marriage. Uh, shortly after that, sometime after they had moved into the house, they had the kids, um, Melissa happened upon some evidence that she confronted Chris about. And what the evidence was was that Chris had been in a two-year relationship with another woman. Chris was uh, deeply apologetic. Uh, he promised to terminate the relationship, and it seems that that's what he did, and he promised that he was going to marry Melissa. And it, it was these promises uh, that caused Melissa to uh, not leave him, but to stay in the relationship and to continue that relationship. And so years passed, and they continued to live in, in this relationship. I'm not sure why they didn't get married. Maybe they were saving up to get the right amount of funds to have the dream wedding to go along with that dream ring. You know, so maybe that's what it was. So 2011 rolls around. It's April 2011, and again, Melissa's dealing with some things, and she happens upon some evidence. Again, and this evidence tells a similar story that she had experienced seven years before. Chris is in a relationship with another woman. So she confronts Chris about it. What's going on here? What's happening? What's, going, what, 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 what's this all about? I thought we had made these promises. We were going to get married. We got kids, you know, all that type of stuff. But different than the previous time, Chris responds in a different way. Chris tells her, hey, listen, I'm in love with this woman. And I think it's best if you and the kids move out of the house because I want to move her in. Melissa was devastated. And she responded like a devastated woman. She took him to court. And she uh, engaged in a lawsuit with a number of claims in it. And two of those claims that were included in it, one was fraud. And the second one was a violation of a breach or rather a breach of contract to marry. Now, before you laugh that out too fast, the court took this extremely seriously. And the Coeta County Superior Court awarded her $43,500 in damages and he also was responsible for paying the attorney fees of $6,500 for a grand total of $50,000. Uh, he appealed the case, but the higher court upheld the decision of the lower court, and he was held to this. Why did she take him to court? Why did she pursue this avenue? Because Chris had broken his promises. She had broken his promises. Now, we've been working our way through Romans, and we've come to this section in Paul's letter where he addresses this issue of God's faithfulness to whether or not God is keeping his promises to Israel. Now, during Paul's time, these promises would have been made hundreds of years before Paul actually lived. And the question that is before the text in light of the illustration I told you is, is God acting like Chris? Did God make a bunch of promises that he had no intention of keeping. And so that's what's on the board and being discussed by Paul. Now, the reason why this question is coming up is because remember now, Paul is writing post the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. 
uh, who he believes to be the Messiah of Israel, the king that God had promised. And he is not only him, but he's come in a surprising way. This is God's very son. And the Jews, Paul's own relatives and those who are, are linked up with his people are not responding to their Messiah in a large way as would be expected. We have an illustration of this recorded and kept and preserved for us by Luke. Luke preserves an instance of this uh, in Luke and uh, Acts in his second volume uh, of his work in Acts chapter 13. Let, let me, let me kind of give you the background of what's going on. So Paul is, is trying to, after the call of God on his life, make sure that the message about Jesus permeates the Roman world, and Rome has made that possible through roads. And so he's trying to make sure that everywhere he can go, he can let them know about what God has done in human history through Jesus of Nazareth. And so he's kind of on one of these journeys. He's got a friend along with him who's partnered with him, uh, Barnabas. And one of the cities that they arrive to is Antioch in Pisidium. And while he's there, uh, uh, Paul, as he tells us at the beginning of the letter of Romans, that he has a strategy by which he's spreading the gospel. And and that strategy is we take the message first to the Jew, and then we take it to the Gentile. And that's what Paul's doing. So Paul finds his way into the local synagogue, and for whatever reason, that city had enough Jewish men uh, to form a a synagogue. That's not always true in Paul's journeys, but but here it is, and he makes his way into the synagogue. And and on this particular Sabbath day, uh, uh, he takes time to uh, go in, and as he's there, the synagogue leaders, uh, because of whatever the practice was and culture of the day, they they recognize this visiting rabbi, and they say to him, hey, hey, do you have a word for us today? And Paul, uh, like Pastor Mike, he's always got a sermon in his back pocket. So you can, you can ask him and catch him any day or any night in any place, and he's going to be ready to preach about Jesus at any point because he's always prepared. That's why I hang with Pastor Mike, so they call him and not me. But, uh, <laughs> but Paul's got to be, Paul's got, I'm the Barnabas along. I'm just, you know, along for the journey, the ride. So, 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 so you, you got this kind of going on, right? And so, so Paul's there, and Paul gets up, and Paul begins to reason from the scriptures that they have. Now, forget, remember now, the Bible for them is the Hebrew Bible. Uh, it's what we call our Old Testament. They don't refer to it as that. They refer to it as the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and so this is the Bible. Uh, Paul is writing letters, and he's one of the earliest writers. So, so the New Testament has not yet been uh, uh, solidified. Yet. That won't help him for hundreds of years. But, 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 but they're, they're working on it, and, and he's writing, and, and he's in this period. And he's, he's going along, and so he's, he's there, and they, he gets up. And after delivering this wonderful message about Jesus, uh, he, he gets a positive response. The, the people, they, they leave synagogue with him. They're talking. They're, they're, they're excited about what he's saying. And, and they say to Paul, man, you're such a good preacher, brother. Why don't you come back and preach again next week? So Paul's like, yeah, yeah, we'll come back. We'll do that. We'll see you next Sabbath. So, so, so a week passes, and they come back for Sabbath once again. And Paul's there, as he had done before, to share the message. But this week, things are different. When they show up at synagogue, there are a bunch of first-time guests, and I mean, they're there in droves, so much so that we might imagine it, it's like every seat is filled, and the back is packed, and there's standing room only. Now, this is where the issue of sin can come up sometimes in leaders' hearts. So here are these out-of-town guests there to speak. Now, you've been ministered in this city for who knows how long. The synagogue has had your few people in it. You've been going, and this out-of-town guy shows up, and man, you can't get a seat in the house. And that's where the text picks up. Let's read the text together, chapter 13. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was, was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. But so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Now, Paul doesn't just have this experience in isolation. He and his ministers, partners, and those change over time have these similar kinds of experiences. And remember now, Paul is writing probably at least from what we think 
uh, or at least the, the estimate is somewhere may, we may be in the late 50s. He's been doing ministry for maybe 25 years, and these experiences have happened years ago. And he's had all this time and all these experiences. And one of the things that he's seen as this repeated pattern and his partners have seen is that there have been this kind of minimal positive response from the people that they expected would be po overwhelmingly positive, which were the Jews of his day. And contrary to expectation, there is this receptiveness among, among all these other people who are not from uh, the descent of Israel. It, it's all these other people who are Greeks and Romans and all these other people from other parts of the world. And, and they're just positively responding to the message that Paul is seeking to spread throughout the Roman world. And so for those who had now met Messiah and, and placed faith in him, and probably some of the Gentile converts who had been God-fearers or, or maybe fully converted over to Judaism uh, and who had known the Old Testament scriptures and were, were holding this expectation, that they're wondering what is going on here because that's not the expectation of what's happening. What is God doing? Is God rejecting those whom he had foreknown and had elected and chosen the nation of Israel? As Dr. Schreiner puts it, uh, most Jews expected that a few Gentiles would be saved and many Jews. But the initial response to the gospel had been precisely the, the reverse. And so we see in these three chapters where Paul is going to unpack and defend God's faithfulness and show how Israel is going to fit into God's plan of redemption of what God is doing uh, in the world. And in these five verses that we have before us, Paul is going to defend God's faithfulness and show how he keeps his promises and how the scriptures were actually predicting the outcome about their real world experiencing that they were seeing in these missionary journeys that they had had and why they were sold this only small response from Jews and this massive response from Gentiles. And Paul is going to show us that the scriptures had already said that that's what should have been expected. So that's what Paul is doing in the text. And so I'm going to mention two things, just two things in the text. Uh, it'll take me some time to develop those two things, but there are two things. Here's the first idea. God keeps his promises to Israel when he calls Gentiles to Christ. God keeps his promises to Israel when he calls Gentiles to Christ. So let's go back. We'll pick up at verse 24. Let me read that again because that is, Psalm of argues, starts a, a new paragraph and a new thought for Paul here. Even us whom he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So Paul has been writing about God's great mercy and that he calls both Jews and Gentiles into this assembly, his assembly, the assembly of God. But now that assembly is formed around God as he's identified himself in his son, Jesus Christ. And now for Paul, trust in and allegiance to God unequivocally means that one must, to be a part of God's assembly, trust in and give allegiance to none other than Jesus of Nazareth, God's own son, who Paul has said has died for our sins and was raised. And to his writings in the Corinthians, he said to them, uh, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And to this new community, this new assembly, uh, what Moses had hoped for now has become true in which God has uh, given the gift of the end time gift promise of the spirit to all of the believers as Moses has hoped would happen. And that has united us not only to God, but also to one another so that we become this new assembly formed around Jesus that is indwelt with God's eschatological spirit. Now, in his prior letter, Paul says a statement that begins to set our minds up for what he's going to do here. He writes in an earlier letter to the Galatians talking about what we, what we picked up in chapter 4 of Romans, but this kind of idea. And he said this, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Now, Paul here is going to quote two verses from a prophet in the Old Testament by the name of Hosea. And he's going to show how these prophecies show that God is actually keeping his promise when he, by God's own plan, includes Gentiles. And probably that would describe most of us in this room. Now, I'm not going to say all, but probably most of us in this room into his people. 
unto his people. Now, if you're looking at your text, I would ask you to look at verse 25 and 26 there. He's quoting two texts. Uh, one is, if you don't have notes at the bottom of your Bible, because if you have some footnotes, they'll probably tell you what these are. He's quoting from Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, and then from Hosea chapter 1, verse 10. Now, if you were to go and try to compare these, you're going to notice that there are some differences between the way Paul quotes the verse and the way that Hosea actually writes the verse. So Paul is going to change some things. One, he's going to reverse the order of the phrases, and then he's also going to replace some words. Where Hosea said, writes say, Paul's going to use the word call. Where Hosea, Hosea writes in some translations, it, it, it's brought across as mercy or pitied. He's going to substitute the word in love or here, beloved. Now some say that uh, from the historical use, they weren't as uh, rigid as we are in trying to be accurate in the way we would use our standards today. And there's more of a, a freeness in, in being able to do this. Others think that what Paul is doing is Paul has a different manuscript tradition than we have that, that's no longer extant. Uh, and so Paul may have been looking at that manuscript and he's quoting from that manuscript. In either case, it serves Paul's purpose for what he's doing here. So Paul, by having the word call at the beginning, you'll look at the beginning of 25, at the end of 26 in these two quotes, you'll notice that call is shifted up to the top of the first one. And as Dr. Mu observes, he puts call at the bottom of the second one. And by doing that, he links the idea back to what he said in verse 24, which is this idea of calling, because that's what he wants to emphasize, that God's people are formed by God's call. And that's what ultimately defines God's people. So how did Hosea so many years before Paul had lived, predict that Gentiles would be included, and this was God's plan all along. So let's first start off by going back to Hosea and picking up Hosea's own context for these uh, writings. So Hosea, if you remember, Hosea is writing during the period where Israel is a divided kingdom. It's two kingdoms. It's Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And Hosea is writing in the northern and speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel. And he opens up his book by recording for us an interesting thing that God asks him to do. And I tried to think about this as, as a follower, being a pastor, if God had asked me to do something like this and what that would be experienced like. And God asks him, he, he goes into that area of life that we might not always think belongs to God, but he goes into an area that we might think belongs to us. He says, this is who I want you to marry. But there's something interesting in the words of Dr. Sherwood he tells them, I want you to marry a faithless woman and a promiscuous woman. In other words, hey, listen, I want you to marry a woman that that's going to cheat on you. That's the kind of woman I want you to marry. Because that's going to illustrate by you living this out how Israel's been acting in relationship with, to me, their spiritual husband. And not only that, when you start to have kids, I'm going to show up and deal with that too because I have some specific names for those kids. I know you've been looking at the baby name book, but I don't want you to use that. I have names for them, and I want you to give them this name, right? And so he's going to name them, and the way he's going to name the kids is not the kind of name you would want to give your kids. But since God said it, you ought to do it. So that's kind of the idea here of what's happening. Let me pick up at verse 6 in the context. We'll just read a few. There's a larger context, but this will give us a feel for what's going on. So it starts off talking about Hosea's wife, and she's had a baby. So, okay, that's, that's who's, in, who's in view. So she conceived again and bore a daughter. So they had had a son first, and they named him Jezreel, but now she had a second child. It's a girl. And let's go to the baby name time, and we're in the hospital in our modern context, and God shows up and says, here's the name for the baby. And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy, for I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Now, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, child three. So we have a son, a daughter, and now another son. And the Lord shows up again for baby name time. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the, number of the children, uh, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up 
from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. That's the name of the first child uh, that was born. Now, we see in these verses these idea of impending judgment upon Israel, the northern kingdom. And beside that is laid aside also a promise of future restoration in which God would one day bring Israel and Judah and put them back at it again as one nation. And not only as one nation, but they're going to have one ruler. Here, most likely pointing back to that idyllic golden era time of when David and Solomon ruled over Israel. So most likely pointing here to a Davidic ruler. Now, I'm not going to read chapter 2, verse uh, 23, because it, it would take the whole chapter to get the buildup there. But it's a similar type of setting. It starts off with promises of judgment, followed by promises of restoration. And he uses there some exodus imagery and some husband-wife imagery of, of wooing Israel and uh, seducing her and bringing her back to himself and this kind of, of, of idea in the restoration part. Now, what you probably picked up from the reading of the text, and as I've been talking, that these promises are directed towards a particular people group. If you were reading the verses and paying attention there, you're going to notice that the word Gentiles did not appear. What word was there, the promise is about the northern kingdom of Israel's, not Gentiles. That's who's the not my people that become my people is northern Israel. So then the question is, how in the world does Paul leap over to take something that's talking about northern Israel and then say it applies to Gentiles? Is Paul playing fast and loose with the text? Now, Dr. Moo lays out an interesting concept. He says, hey, look, as a New Testament scholar, he says, look, there, there is this kind of concept that's going on uh, with the New Testament writers in which uh, they are using this interpretive principle where they are uh, looking at Old Testament prophecies and they're seeing their fulfillment uh, in the church. In his own words, that Old Testament predictions of a renewed Israel find their fulfillment uh, in the church. I, I would like to add uh, the thought of another New Testament scholar who has looked at these specific chapters and, and looked at them in depth. He did his doctoral diss dissertation on these, looking at how Paul uses Israel and Jews and looking at Second Temple literature uh, and doing his uh, PhD under uh, Bart Ehrman, who's a well-known scholar who happens to be an atheist. And uh, he did an extremely thorough, massive dissertation on writing about what is going on with this text. And he offers an insight from his research uh, that I believe should be heard here and is something that we should consider as why Paul is in the background reading the text in this way and so as to see it as faithful to the text and not violate the text, but also true to describe what's going on during his day. Now, uh, he, he's written a book, which is the first half of his dissertation, and he's published some articles that I've read. Uh, but I, I want to quote from a blog that he wrote on Dr. Ehrman's site more recently uh, in 2020 where he talks about this particular um, instance in Paul's writings, and he brings this thought out. Uh, and so I'm going to quote him at length so that you can get the feel for the thought of what he's being, bringing across. So he starts here and he writes, uh, the first point is in Romans 9, 23 through 26, where Paul explains that God has chosen to show mercy to those he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from among Gentiles. As proof, he cites a passage from the prophet Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. There's more going on here than meets the eye. You'll remember from my last post, and I'm sorry I didn't bring the last post for you, uh, but according to the Hebrew Bible, our Christian Old Testament, the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed and its people scattered by Assyria because that was a serious policy to deal with rebels, to, to keep rebellion down. So shortly before that happened, the prophet Hosea had warned that such judgment was coming and declaring that Israel's infidelity, that's what we talked about, that promiscuity, had resulted in God's divine divorce. You are not my people, and as Hosea proclaimed on behalf of Israel's God, I am not your God. Whereas previously Israel's God had provided for them and ensured their safety, he would now cast them among the nations where they would be swallowed up. Hosea chapter 8, verse 8. No different than any other people. Nevertheless, the prophet also promises that God would one day restore those whom he said, you are not my people, making them his special people once again. That's the text we just read uh, for a moment ago. 
These are the verses Paul quotes in Romans 9, but he strangely applies these verses to the Gentiles being shown mercy. Is he just ignoring the context to cite some convenient, something convenient for his argument? That's possible, but I think there's more going on here below the surface. Specifically, Paul has latched onto these verses because of the not-my-people language. After all, Gentiles are by definition not God's people. Further, if Hosea is telling the northern Israelites that they are now not my people, that is, outside the special covenant with God, wouldn't that mean they effectively have become Gentiles? Putting the pieces together, Paul appears to read Hosea as a twofold prophecy, each directly involving Gentiles or Gentile status. First, northern Israel would no longer be distinct from the rest of the nations. They've effectively become Gentiles. And this does seem to be what happened in the northern Israelites who were scattered by Assyria. They intermarried with the other peoples, thus assimilating into those groups and ceasing to be their own separate ethnic group. But at some time later, and this is the part that Paul specifically quotes, God will restore Israel from being not my people, that is, Gentiles, to put it plainly. Much of Israel had gone native and become Gentiles, so God is now fulfilling his promise to restore Israel by incorporating Gentiles. Let me use an illustration to try to get the point across, uh, just in case you may not have been tracking with me there. Illustrations break down to various points. Just kind of know that this is just to kind of get the general idea across. So uh, this past October, we had our marriage night event. And uh, as part of that, when we're getting on the day of an event, uh, the team and I get together, and there are just various things that we need to do to get prepped. And sometimes there's certain things that we can't get done until the day of the event, and this happened to be some of those things. So I came to work really early that day because I had a lot of errands to run. Uh, and because of that, because I was eager to make sure that things were in place for our event so that it would be a good experience for our church family, I got to work early. I skipped breakfast. And one of my things, uh, one of my errands took me to Costco. And you know how it is when you get to a store full of food and you're hungry. <laughs> so I'm in there. I'm thirsty. I want something to drink, some water. But I also am feeling a little weak because I didn't eat breakfast, so I want something to give me energy so I can make it through all the tasks because it's going to be one of those long days. It's been early. We're going to get out late because the event wasn't going to end until 11 p.m. at night, which means clean up. We get out of here at midnight. It's one of those kind of days. So I wanted both of those things. I'm making my way through the aisles, picking up my stuff, smelling all the food that they're cooking. But the wonderful thing about Sam's and Costco is that they had these little kiosks with vendors at them. And they sometimes give away free samples. So as I was making my way by, I eyed up one of the vendors. And I made my way by to kind of see what he was peddling. And uh, it kind of caught my interest, so I made my way back by again. <laughs> and on my third pass, he says to me, hey, I guess he noticed I was making passes. I want to show you something. You mind coming over here to, to, to test out my product? And I'm like, yeah, 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 I'd be happy to do that. And he's like, you know, I'm offering this, uh, this product. Uh, and, and it happened to turn out that after some talking, I found out that he was a Christian. Um, he's like, look, I, I got this uh, powder. It's, it's an energy powder. It's, it's all natural, no sugar added. It'll give you energy to make it through the entire day. Now, he didn't know what was going on, but I did, and I was thankful. So he said, he, he, he took it out, and he was like, would you mind trying it to just, just to test the product out to, you know, potentially become a buyer of the product? I was like, yeah, brother, you know, I, I'll try the product, I, you know, not to, not, not, not to oversell things. So he knew I was hungry and thirsty and about to pass out. But, you know, like, yeah, brother, I'm really excited. So he takes his powder, and he just shakes it into the water. And he takes it to a whole bottle of water, and he shakes it up, and he hands it to me and says, now drink that, brother, and let me know how you feel in a minute. So, you know, I gulp that thing down, and I'm feeling great. Like, yeah, this has been a good experience. Now, let me apply that to the text. So, so what I think he's getting at here is this, and this is not a perfect illustration. So what he did was God took Israel like the powder, and through judgment he shook it into the sea or the water of the Gentiles so that he mixed them up so that he could get both things at the exact same time in the text. So in this way, God, by seeing this text in that way, God faithfully keeps his promise through Hosea to bring in the Gentiles while also keeping his promise to Abraham that he would bless the nations and restore Israel at the exact same time through faith 
in the Messiah, Jesus, who Paul said is the one seed of Abraham. Dr. Sherwood puts it this way, for Paul, the advent of the Christ event in the eschatological moment, that is here, Paul seeing this as the end of the world kind of events, uh, things are wrapping up as the Messiah has appeared, a moment for which Hosea had hoped, uh, and in this present context, the we being saved is God delivering on his promises the ones he made in Genesis 15, 5, and 22, 17, since believers, especially non-Jews, now at this end time, eschatologically, number among my people and the sons of the living God. Since Jesus had died and been raised from the dead, Paul now looks at themselves at the end of time, and he sees the Gentile response as that future time to which Hosea was looking towards in his prophecies, in which God would restore Israel and bring in the Gentiles. And from this way of reading and looking at the text, if this is what's going on in Paul's mind, then God is being faithful because he has kept his promise to restore Israel. He's just done it in such a way so that he could include the Gentiles in it also. Now, how does Paul call, I mean, how does God call his people? Well, Paul tells the Thessalonians very plainly when he writes to them in his letter, he says this, but we ought to always give to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because he chose you as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. To this, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The glory there, that kind of Romans 8 kind of idea. So Paul says God calls Jews and Gentiles through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now here, I'll lay out a view because one of the questions that normally comes up is, does this mean then that the, that the church replaces Israel. Now, now, here's the view that I, I take personally on this. I, I, I've shifted from where I was, the DTS, which was more of a dispensational view. I've I, more shifted towards where Dr. Bird lands, and, uh, and this is what he says, and I believe he's right. Um, God is not replacing Israel with the church. Instead, God is preserving a remnant within Israel and then expanding it to include the Gentiles as well. Now, before moving on to our second point, let me offer a few thoughts of how we might see some implications for our lives as a community of believers and then as individual believers. So let me first offer a few thoughts to perhaps consider. Uh, from a corporate perspective, uh, I think the realization that God is calling those who are not his people to become his people and knowing that the means by which God is doing that is through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ should at some level stir our hearts as the people of God to want to saturate our community and city with the gospel message of Jesus. We should desire, because we know the way God is doing this and what God's intention and what God is doing, to partner with God to make sure that every man, woman, boy, and girl has an opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. In addition to that, I think this also has implications for us as a gathered community of believers, which is because God is in the process of welcoming those in who are not his people to become his people, and he may be drawn by calling them to himself, and God is going to bring them into the church for that purpose, then we ought to be a welcoming community as well. That means that you and I have to make this a hospitable place as appropriate. Now, for Pastor Mike, for Mike B., for me, most people will expect us as those who serve as pastors to be hospitable. But what they really want to know is do the members of the church who make up this body, are they willing to make room for me in the fellowship? And now that's incumbent upon you. How you deal with, interact with others who are coming in the life of the church that God may be bringing in at various stages of faith or drawing depends on somewhat the kind of environment that you create. That's how you have to deal with people. And I would say that lays upon you. On an individual level, if you are a Gentile like me, then you have a reason to feel a sense of joy and thankfulness because of God's goodness and mercy in your life. So God has taken these promises that he had given to Abraham and his descendants and God and his wisdom have so worked it out so that you and I, who are, not, who are not by nature God's children, can be brought in and made part of God's children and become part of God's family. It's kind of like 
when you uh, are a parent and you promise to take your child perhaps to Hershey Park that day. And for whatever reason, some events unfold and your, your son or your daughter's best friend end up at your house today. And they're like, well, Daddy, you said you were going to take me to uh, Hershey Park. And you're like, okay, yeah, I'm going to take you to Hershey Park. I, I promise you I was going to do that today. Now we got this other event. And then you rope in this other child and you take them along and bring them in. They get to enjoy what you have promised to your child, and they get to enjoy the benefits. You and I are that other child, and God has included us in what he's doing. Lastly, I find these pastors a sense of hope. We see that God deals justly with his people when they lapse into sin, but if you notice with that, there's always these promises of restoration mingled in. Now, perhaps you as God's, as God's family, God's child, at some point, you have in some way lapsed into sin in your life in the past. And God has visited you about that sin. And God has dealt with you in justice. And perhaps maybe you've wondered, what is God going to do? Is he going to leave me in this state? But one of the things that I find encouraging about this is that the God who disciplines his children is also the God who restores them. God doesn't want to leave you where you are. He wants to bring you, and he has the power and the ability and the wisdom to put you back into place that he wants to use you again. That, that God, this God of the Bible, loves you and cares for you, and his desire is to restore you. Now, you may say, well, this is only on a national level, but then I would argue, what about David? And what about Peter? They sinned, and God restored them. God, I would say, is willing to do the same thing for you. Here's my second observation of the text, and this is the last one that I have. God keeps his promises to Israel when he calls Jews to Christ. God keeps his promises to Israel when he calls Jews to Christ. We're going to see this in verses 27 through 29. Let me read that since it's been a few minutes since we went back just to remind you of what it says. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us an offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now, here again, we find Paul quoting two verses from a prophet uh, in the Old Testament in response to now laying out how he understands why the Jewish response during his day is the way it is. This time he switches prophets, he jumps to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 10, verses 22 and 23, and then Isaiah chapter uh, 1, verse 29. And he does some similar things with these verses that he did with the previous one. He replaces some words, he replaces people with the number of the sons of Israel. That is, he migrates the language from Hosea chapter 1 down, on, down into Isaiah's prophecy to, to, to link those concepts together. And then he omits some words that don't seem to have to do with the argument that he's making. So the question is, what is going on in Isaiah's book? Dr. Sherwood gives us the context of chapters 1 through 39 by summing it up this way. He said, these chapters specify for all Israel, Isaiah 1 through 39, that the overarching concern of the so-called wisdom debate between God and Israel and that Jerusalem's leadership opposed God in their idolatrous rebellion. So the book of Isaiah begins with a message towards Judah and Jerusalem, and God is going to call them into court to press his charges against them for their idolatrous rebellion. But even in this, God mingles in these promises with judgment of mercy. But one of the proofs that God is going to show that the, that the nation is under judgment is he's going to reduce the size of the nation down to a small amount, which here we refer to as a remnant, as a remnant. Let me read a little bit of Isaiah to give you the feel of the context of what's going on. Isaiah chapter 1, we'll pick up at verse 4. Um, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In, the very in your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by force. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord had not left us, 
a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and would have become like Gomorrah. You remember Genesis 19, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, even though Lot was moved to one city, was spared, they were utterly annihilated and wiped off the pages of history. The quote from chapter 10 finds itself in similar circumstances. Dr. Grant Osborne gives us the context for what's going on in the chapter 7 through 12, in which chapter 10 is squarely almost uh, in the middle. He writes, Isaiah, in Isaiah, this part of the oracle, uh, asking the people of, it was asking the people of Israel whether they wanted to trust in Assyria or God. Because they had placed their trust in Assyria, they would be destroyed, but not all. God was still in control, and a remnant would be spared. So if you were here during our Christmas season, we kind of addressed this. Pastor Mike talked about the historical situation when he introduced our Advent series, and he talked about what was going on in this historical period, that uh, Israel and Syria had an allied together, and they were attacking Judah because Judah had refused to join their little band of, uh, of rebellion because they wanted to rebel against Assyria, the, the dominant power in the region uh, at the time. And so they were attacking. And it was through the prophet Isaiah that God sent a message to the king, King Ahaz, and said to him, hey, I'm here. I'm willing to deliver you if you'll put your trust in me. And of course, uh, Ahaz turned down God and was like, hey, God, appreciate the offer, brother. No, thank you. I got it worked out on my end. I'm going to make a partnership with uh, Assyria. We're going to get a political alliance going on here. I'm going to deal with them. Thank you for the offer. No, thank you. You can step aside. I got it under control. And as a result of that, because these people are in covenant with God, this means that they have lapsed into idolatry because trust has shifted from God to Assyria for salvation. And by shifting trust from God to Assyria for salvation, they have moved from God being their God to Assyria being their God and now they've lapsed into idolatry and have broken the covenant and have gone into rebellion against God. And so what God says in response to that, as he had promised before, that when they did this kind of thing, and if they would break the covenant, then he would visit them in judgment. And so what he says to them, you looking to Assyria to save you? I'm going to take the one you're looking to save you, and I'm going to turn it into my instrument of judgment against you to teach you a lesson to not put your trust in other things. Now, in the context, he talks about that. Then he talks about the arrogance of, of Assyria, that he's going to judge them. And then we find the second text that, uh, uh, that Paul quotes from Isaiah. Let me just give you a small snippet of that, uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. Pick up at verse 20, we find, In that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Here we find a text that Paul is quoting, but it is a judgment text in regards to the remnant. So how does Paul relate what's going on in his day with Jewish response to the gospel of Jesus Christ to this ancient prophet of Hosea and what, I mean, of Isaiah and how God is being faithful to Jews in light of what is going on in the text. Again, here I draw upon Dr. Sherwood as he gives us a caution about how to read this text in light of its historical context in Paul's letter. He says, care must be taken to not wrongly take Isaiah's poetic depiction in the wrong way. He is not here describing how God graciously spared a remnant of Israel even in judgment. Instead, he uses the remnant as judgment motif, as recognized by many Isaiah scholars, to emphasize that God's judgment is apparently his reduction of 8th century Israel to a mere remnant. Militarily coming against them as the Lord of hosts. Notice that title that's used of God. Here we might translate it also as the Lord of armies. The idea is that God is bringing his armies against his people in judgment. The prophet warns that Israel's rebellion will lead to their being, being all but annihilated. The warning sets the trajectory that is carried out across Isaiah chapters 1 through 12. What follows is God's hardening as a judgment for Israel's idolatry in chapter 6 and the corresponding drama that unfolds with Ahaz as God routes them as he talks about in chapter 7 through 9, which we've already covered. So let me try to bring out what he's getting here uh, in his comments. He writes much more than that, but I'm just giving you a snippet of that, uh, of the argument that he's making here. 
So when Israel in history lapsed into idolatry, thus breaking the covenant, thus becoming rebels against God in the past, such as in Isaiah's time, God promised in faithfully keeping the covenant that he would visit them in judgment. And the judgment would ultimately, almost if God allow it, wipe them from the face of the earth, just like he had done with Sodom and Gomorrah. But God in mercy would spare a few survivors so that the nation's life could continue. And that would bring to them a hope that things might be different if in, in the future. And so what Paul sees in his time by this limited response by the Jews to the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he sees it as a sign of God's judgment upon the nation because the nation in the current time, Paul's day, had done exactly as the nation had done during Hosea's time. They had rejected God's offer of salvation and shifted their trust to some other place. When the nation rejected Jesus as the Messiah, they lapsed into idolatry, and then they became rebellious and broke the covenant with God because they did not accept God's offer of salvation through Jesus and chose another way of salvation. And so they repeat what happens in Israel's day, and thus God, when that happens in the nation, his promise is that he will visit them in judgment and all but annihilate them. And the sign that he is visiting them in judgment is that only a few will be saved. The concept here is that Paul is seeing this, that the reason only a few Jews are responding to the call of God is because God has hardened Israel. And in response to that, the remnant is a reminder that the nation is under judgment. Now, in my class that I'm taking right now, uh, which is a class on Judaism, the history of Judaism and the Messianic movement over time, they talk about how this hardening kind of plays out, and we see it play out in history. So in Jesus' ministry, one of the things he said was, hey, you won't accept me because I don't come in my own name, but you will accept those who come in their own name. And that's exactly what happens in Israel's history. There are these other would-be messiahs. There's some books written on a, a bunch of messiahs that come out, and they take them. And so one of those messiahs come along, and during the period around the 60s into 70 A.D., there is a rebellion against Rome. There's a fight that happens. That happens for several years, but the fight ends with Rome on top as they had end done with many other nations, and they ultimately end up destroying the temple. Well, Israel continues to rebel. There's one, an, another rebellion some years later, then finally another rebellion in 135, and then Rome brings in and utterly annihilates the nation, disperses the Jews, evicts them from their homeland, lays the city to waste, rebuilds another city on it, renames the city, and renames the entire region, changes the name from Judah to Palestine. And we're reminded of the words of Jesus during his ministry as he pointed forward to these things. He says, therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Paul's point is the reason why the response is the way that it is is because the nation as a whole had rejected God. And the remnant is a reminder that God has in judgment acted faithfully with the promises that he did in the covenant by judging the nation. And that's why there's only a small remnant. But Paul holds out hope. He doesn't leave on a note of despair because the remnant points forward to what God's doing in his plan. Paul's going to get to this in chapter 11 where he's going to work this out and show that there is a day in which God is going to reverse the situation and there's going to be something different that's going to happen with the nation, right? And he's going to do this. And the means by which God and his wisdom has done is he's allowed the Israel's unbelief to be the, the avenue by which he opens the door for Gentiles to come in by the droves and become part of his people. The God, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, is going to circle back around, deal with the Jews, and bring an end to the human history. And that's the argument that Paul is making in the text. We'll see that more developed in Romans 11. Now, there are a few thoughts here that we need to take into account that I want to bring as we get ready to conclude this message. Now, in my class, I told you that the elders have afforded me as a continuing education class is I'm taking Judaism from Second Temple to modern day and the Messianic movement in that period of time. And so over the last several weeks, I've had the chance to read on the history of what's been happening with the Jewish people throughout history. And I have run into some extremely 
disheartening, shocking instances of how Jews have been treated by the church. And there has been a lot of anti-Semitism in the history of the church because the way the church has read the scriptures and thought about Jewish people. What I want you to know today is this text is not advocating for you to take an anti-Semitic attitude, just the opposite. We ought to have an attitude of compassion. We who are to be the people of Jesus ought to be loving and caring to those whom God loves. We know that God still loves them because Paul is going to say explicitly, because they are elect by God, they are loved by God. But right now, God has dealt with them in such a way so as to make room for the Gentiles to come in. But God is still calling Jews to place faith in himself through his son as he introduces them to their Messiah who has become our Messiah as those who are outsiders to the promises that belong to Abraham and his descendants. Another thought that comes up is this. As we consider God's dealing with, with Israel, we ought to also not, I would say, not quickly give up on people when we are out like Paul trying to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. The attitude that we ought not to have as believers is this. That once I meet a person, once I engage them, once I share the gospel with them one time, and if they don't respond positively in that instance, then I ought to give up on them and throw them and cast them to the side. J.B. Tanwell, a minister, college minister in Europe, in dealing with college ministries, found himself in that kind of place of disheartened. He had been ministering in Europe as a campus minister, trying to share the gospel, teach those few Christians that they had how to share their faith uh, with those other college students there in Europe. And he was meeting, meeting two things. One, a lack of positive response, or two, antagonism toward the message of Jesus. And he started to get discouraged. And so a friend of his who was ministering to college students in Canada sent him a book called I Once Was Lost. And that reshaped his perspective on dealing with those who are not believers. In the book, what he says is that there are stages that people often go through that lead them, that God works through to bring them to faith. And some of those stages look like this. Sometimes it starts off with an unbeliever first having to build a relationship where they actually trust the Christian to believe that what you're saying even has any validity. And then when you build a trust relationship, they might have some curiosity about your beliefs because they actually believe that what you say has value. And so, so they're willing to listen, and then they might become open to the change as God works through the process, such to the point that God begins to draw them, and they become uh, this part where they start to seek after God because God is drawing them to himself because he's calling them. And in the end, they end up in faith in Jesus Christ. What I would say to you is don't give up on the first attempt. God may have a process by which he's working. To remind you of the fact that God is working into the world and to, to end on a positive note that God is still working to call people to himself, especially those who are Jews as well, and God is working in that way. I want to share with you a Jewish testimony of how God worked in the life of a Jewish woman and brought her into relationship with Messiah Jesus. If you turn your attention to the screen, you'll see the story behind you, in front of you. When I was nine years old, we moved to the United States uh, from Jerusalem, and the number one song in the country was Anne Marie, One Day at a Time, Sweet Jesus. And I'll never forget, my mom comes into the car and I'm like, one day at a time, sweet Jesus. My mom says, what did you say? My mouth. And I said, I'm singing the song. She's like, Lomrim Jesus, we don't say Jesus. But why? In Hebrew, she says, Zeyeshu. I grew up not being able to say that name. My son at the age of five was diagnosed with Asperger's. He was not verbal. He was very distant. He was the cause of me going back to school and becoming a special education teacher. I knew a lot about science. I studied a lot about everything, but I really never even opened the Bible. Ironically, I was teaching Hebrew school as a side job, teaching the prayers, teaching the liturgy. I mean, I knew everything. I, I had seen my father pray the prayers and put on the tallit, and, and I know all of the rhetoric and everything that, you know, goes along with being Jewish, but I didn't feel any connection to God. I would sit at synagogue, and I tried to feel something. I tried to feel God, 
And it wasn't, it was like the Chagall stained glass windows and everybody around me and the Bima and the Ark and the Torah being taken out. And I felt, I remember feeling nothing. At my school, I worked at an after-school program and there was a woman um, that had wrote, written a book called Jesus, Can I Talk to You? So she said to me, I don't have money to hire an editor. Would you help me edit my book? And I said, well, I don't know anything about Jesus. So I do know about writing. I know about English. I know about commas. I know about semicolons. I just don't know anything about Jesus. It was a lot of stuff from the Old Testament. And I'm like, um, and, and I would see things like, you know, uh, this is from Ecclesiastes, or this is from, you know, Samuel or Kings. And I was like, these are our, our books. This came from the Jewish Bible. I never read the Bible. I read about the fact that we would be pierced. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. And for the first time, the Bible came alive to me. And it's Isaiah 53. And, you know, I said, how can you miss this? It's like right there. It's right there in the scripture. In our, in our book, saying the prayer and asking for him to come into my life, and I accepted him as my savior, even though I just became a believer in the Jewish Messiah, but in Jesus, whose name I can't even say at the private Jewish school. Whoa, this is too weird. The grandson of the head of our Judaics program, and the first year that he was there, he you know, would talk to me and, and I would say, oh, it's time to go to tefillah. You know, students were required to go to prayer and you must go to tefillah. He's like, I hate tefillah. I'm like, your grandfather is the head of the Judaics program of the school. And so he comes up and he puts a keep on my head and he's like, you're like a rabbi because rabbi in Hebrew means teacher. He goes, I could just see it. One day you're going to become a Hasidic. And I said, no, 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 Joshua. <laughs> totally the furthest thing I'm going to become. He says to me, he goes, I don't understand you. What kind, like, do you keep Shabbat? What kind of a Jew are you? What do you mean, what kind of a Jew am I? And he goes, there's something different about you. There's, I don't know what it is. There's something different about you. And I said, Joshua, sit down. I really respect you. And I'm going to tell you, uh, what's different about me is that I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And his eyes got wide and he stood up and he pointed at me. He's like, I knew it, I knew it. You're, you're always talking about love and stuff. And, and, and the students know, they know. I, I can talk about God all day. See, I couldn't do that in public school. Public school, you can't talk about God. But at a private Jewish school, I could talk about God all day. And you know, sometimes they'll, they'll go, you know, they, they test me and, and sometimes I get really close and they really question, like, what am I really saying? But if they ever come to me and say, what do you really believe, like Joshua does or did, I would tell them, I believe that Jesus is my Messiah. Coming out of the Messianic closet, that's pretty much a good way to put this. I'm, I've gone against, completely against the grain. You know, when you go against the grain, like, you get splinters. It's not easy. It's not been an easy path for me, especially knowing what I know and hearing what I hear, how the rabbis talk about him, how the students mock him. And I say, okay, I'm here for you. I wanna stay here, you know? And people ask me, aren't you afraid if they find out at your school that you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that you'll get fired? So God will always provide. He has through everything and he always delivers. He took it on the cross for me. Jesus died so that I could be born again. The greatest pain is to give up your own child. How much God must have loved us to give up his only son for us. I conclude with the words I began with, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And I know that it's sometimes hard to hear, oh Lord, as we are reminded that you are God and we are not. 
But we thank you for the great mercy. We thank you for your calling in our lives, that this room, there are Jews in this room, and there are Gentiles in this room. And we thank you because that is because of your great wisdom and mercy. For some of us, we were not your people, and you made us your people. We're grateful. And Lord, as we continue in worship, we want to show that to you, Lord. Some of us have already done it. Some of us are going to do it later this afternoon. Some of us are going to do it on our phones. Some of us have it automatically set up. And some of us are going to do it as the plate is passed in just a moment. We're going to express our gratitude. Because we believe in what you're doing in the world. And we know that it takes money to do resources and stuff like that. And we're going to give so that we can, Lord, hopefully saturate our community as you're in the process of calling people to yourself from Israel and from the nations to be one people with one shepherd, your son, Jesus, the Messiah, that Davidic king that was promised so long ago. We humble ourselves before you. We give thanks to you that we're able to worship in this way. And if there are those in this room, Lord, who is in their heart to give, but they're not able to give it the amount that they want to, I pray in the future you would bless them to be able to do that. In Jesus' precious name, amen.